All right. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. Um, and today I am joined by newly minted Rolling Stone political reporter Nikki McCann Ramirez. Nikki has been on the show a number of times uh, back when uh, she was with Media Matters and uh, was doing kind of more, I think, targeted. Uh, uh, going after, I guess, right-wing figures, uh, you know, either on Fox or, or their kind of hangers-on. Um, so uh, definitely psyched to have Nikki back on. Uh, we're going to be talking about Roe and, well, the end of Roe and kind of about the court uh, in general. Um, and, yeah, like, let's just get started, I guess. Uh, I, I, I do want to begin here... Um, by I guess we'll do like a little bit of a uh, once over as to what's happening. Obviously, uh, everyone knows that Roe was struck down um, on Friday, and the uh, response so far has been pretty disheartening, especially on the part of Democrats who have kind of sold themselves as the as the uh, you know abortion rights, women's rights uh, party for so long. And now we have kind of seen that they are not really uh, coming through with that. I talked to uh, a number of people uh, over the weekend uh, on, on Sunday about what they thought. Uh, the reactions were not uh, necessarily great. Uh, the I, I, I do I guess I will let's start here by by listening to um, these this this young woman who was asked. Um, at at outside of the Supreme Court, she was protesting, and she was asked by MSNBC, an MSNBC reporter here, uh, you know, kind of like what she thought about the political response. So we'll listen to that, and then we'll listen to something that Kamala Harris said, and then we'll start talking to Nikki. So, uh, so first, here's here's the protester. For abortion rights, um, thank you guys so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, so, talk to me first about why it is you wanted to come out here today, because something that struck me. Um, was when you were speaking earlier and you mentioned your anger because you had received a text message from the Biden campaign. Why is that? Um, so I received a text message from Joe Biden's campaign yesterday saying that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade and that it was my responsibility to then rush $15 to the Democratic National Party. Um, and I thought that was absolutely outrageous because my rights should not be a fundraising point for them um, or a campaigning point. Uh, they have had multiple opportunities to codify Roe into law over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they haven't done it. And if they're going to keep campaigning on this point, they should actually do something about it. What are you most worried about, Julia? So, okay, so, so that's the uh, so that's this young woman who's uh, outside the Supreme Court uh, reacting to the the move by Democrats, which is basically to just ask for money and ask for uh, for votes and, and not to really offer anyone anything uh, materially in the meantime. Uh, and so following up on here, uh, they asked Kamala Harris uh, whether or not she would, this is on CNN, they asked her, uh, you know, if, if, if she would, uh, about some like concrete steps that could be taken uh, to protect people, uh, protect the right to abortion, and to like to help people right now, because um, if, if you've been following this, you already know, but a lot of these clinics 
especially in in you know uh, deep south and other red states ended up having to basically just like stop operations and so that leaves uh thousands at least if not millions of 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 people um who uh, who are pregnant in and in need of reproductive health services uh, just adrift. So uh, this is this is what Harris had to say uh, when she was asked about. It. This is about like a minute and a half, but uh, I, th- I think it's good to like get the get the question and then get this somewhat incoherent answer. Just last administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right, that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek but to receive the care where it is available. Is federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130-odd days away from an election, which is going to include Senate races, right? Part of the issue here is that the court has acted, now Congress needs to act. But we, if you count the votes, don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening. In 130 odd days, I'm taking, for example, thinking of, of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's a the Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado, and we need to change the balance and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law, right? We say codified, mm-hmm. put it in law, so that there will be no ambiguity about it. And I want to. So uh, just a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, uh, th- th- this is not to discount um, the possibility that obviously if the GOP uh, uh, took the Senate or, and or the House, uh, any chance of codifying Roe would obviously be off the table. But it seems like it's off the table now, uh, which is quite frustrating considering that they do have Congress and that they do have the White House. So that's one. Um, her... Harris's response to this is to basically say vote in four months um, as opposed to being able to do anything to help people now. And honestly, like, if that is the deal, uh, then I think that they should just come out and say it and kind of, you know, admit that, like, due to the uh, political realities, uh, there are, like, like people who can't get an abortion are simply going to be sacrificed uh, in, in, in the meantime or in, you know, however, because I get... I, Again, it would be like another six months, I guess, like another couple months after any election to get uh, the necessary majority in. So um, a pretty frustrating lack of response there. Uh, so, Nikki, um, I guess that's kind of like a long lead up. And, 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 and we're not going to focus on, on Democrats the entire time. But I am interested in what your response is uh, to the response and, and, and what you think about this kind of reaction at this time uh, when – Things are pretty tense. Hi. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on again. Very, very excited to talk, to be here. Less excited about the topic, of course. I think my initial response, and I think a lot of people's initial response to this, 
was we saw this coming like fundamentally we knew this was coming we've known it for years at this point but we got a pretty like giant billboard about six or seven weeks ago when the draft opinion leaked and i think the frustration that people are feeling right now is compounded by this sense that like democrats had weeks to kind of prepare a strategy knowing that this was coming down the pipeline knowing that the overturning of roe would immediately affect millions of people living in states with trigger laws and we didn't really get a response and i know for a lot of people criticism of the of the democratic party and their lack of action on this issue can be upsetting a lot of people don't try to like to talk about it and in a lot of ways i think it's understandable we have limited options within the two party system and i think a lot of people truly want to believe that we live in a representative system of government where if we you know play by the rules and trust these institutions to act in our best interests we will get the results that we want but when one party the republican party is actively trying to break those systems to secure minority rule and the other party repeatedly shows itself to be incapable of formulating a re robust response to that attack that merits criticism and it merits asking questions of leadership and if you believe in a system of representative government then you need to believe that no one is entitled to a seat in government and if your elected representatives are failing to represent you it is perfectly okay to make them fear for their seats to make them realize that there are people out there who will represent their constituents better, who, who more closely align to what their constituents want and need. And I think Kamala's soundbite, where she says, it's not, it's not right now what we are discussing. You know, the idea of providing abortion access on federal land, maybe like, I know there's discussions about like expanding the courts, things like that. The Democratic Party isn't really telling us what they're discussing. And if their reality for them is that we can't do anything legislatively until November, until we know whether or not we will have continued power in the legislature, there are still other things that the Democratic Party could have done to start addressing the on the ground needs of people who would lose access to reproductive health care. Even if they had just come out when this happened with a strategy for prosecutors and DAs and state legislatures on this is a national strategy for how we're gonna protect women and providers against the threat of criminalization. We're gonna protect the rights of people to cross state lines into you know states where abortion access is still protected. Even if they had come out with a national directive, which they had the time to prepare to say, this is what we can do in this moment to start helping people retain access to their reproductive health care. That would have been something. And again, I can't blame anyone for being frustrated with the response because knowing that this was coming down the pipeline, knowing that this leak or knowing with the leak that this was going to happen sometime in June, it really felt like there wasn't any moves move made to start preparing a national strategy for what to do once this decision came down the line. Yeah. And, and it does seem that like there, 
their sole response is to essentially say, you know, give us money and vote for us in the future. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, that's like a bad response at any time. Um, it's, it's particularly, I think, as you're saying, like it's a particularly bad response um, when you've had like this lead time, like you said, six, seven weeks of lead time to prepare, knowing what's going to, knowing what's coming, knowing, uh, you know, like, like what the consequences are going to be. I mean, like the trigger law stuff is like, that was not, um, a secret, right? Like everyone knew that that was going to happen. Like that's the, the those laws have been on the books for a long time. So what is possibly like the excuse at this point to simply come out and say, Hey, you know, just, uh, just vote for us and, and, and things will eventually maybe be okay. I mean, it's also like if, if they're not going to entertain blowing up the filibuster, what they're essentially saying is that you need to like deliver nine to 10 seats, uh, which is functionally impossible, especially considering the, you know, the, the way the voting rights have just been completely gutted. And again, that's another thing. Like they have a trifecta. They could have done something about that. They haven't. So it's this kind of like constant like churn, I feel like, where they have had all of these opportunities uh, to solve these problems and they haven't. And now they're blaming the voters and the public for the fact that they haven't solved the problems. And I think that this is like this is a kind of a constant criticism of the Democratic Party uh, that they haven't really uh, been able to meet the moment for for decades at this point. Um, and especially as you're saying, I mean, like the GOP has made no secret of what they're doing and what they are trying to do and their, uh, you know, their kind of specific game plan for the future. They're making it very, very clear right now. Uh, you know, Mike, Mike Pence coming out saying that he wants a national ban. Uh, he, he's kind of like the, uh, he, he, he's like a good example of maybe like a more mainstream Republican party, uh, of of the old mainstream so there's really there's no going to be no daylight between anybody in the party as far as this stuff and the minute that they get a trifecta it's going to be a federal national ban and the lack of urgency about this uh from from the party and and from you know their their most fervent supporters is is distressing um do you i mean we, I guess we are seeing some of it from, from the progressive wing, but, but, but definitely not from the party leadership. Do you have any hope that that's going to, going to turn around, that that's going to flip, and that we might see you know, uh, them taking it a little bit more seriously? I would hope so, but I wouldn't bet on it. So my thoughts there is that I think for a long time, Democratic leadership and the Democratic Party generally has been – so scared of Republican backlash to policymaking and so willing to let Republicans and the GOP define the terms of debate that oftentimes they would rather do nothing um, than risk losses. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things that they could do to kind of make steps to secure an overturning of the filibuster. I think if the Democratic Party really 
had, you know, the pants to do things, they would start threatening to primary mansion in cinema or investigate mansions, you know, at like weird energy deals, but they won't do it. And I think the reality is that Republicans do not give a shit how nicely you play ball or what you're willing to concede. They will still fight as hard as they can to get everything they want. Um, and they will take any concession you give them as a gift, not as a deal. And of course, like, Roe versus Wade isn't just about the right to reproduction and reproductive care. It's about the right to decide the quantity and distribution of any children you may or may not have or want to have. And I think it's like watching the Republican reaction to this decision. They're trying to argue that this increases liberty because it returns the decision to the states, which is a little bit of an absurd argument. The people in the more than a dozen states with trigger laws are not more liberated. Uh, they have been very, they have very deliberately had choice taken away from them. And I think it's important to remember here now that like Republicans and also Democrats in a way are appealing to this idea that there will be robust debate, that we voters need to decide this in their states and in natural election and in, in national elections. And it's important to remember that there is no debate when the outcome has already been decided. And that outcome includes the very real potential of a federal abortion ban. When Republicans say that this is now a state's rights issue, they are lying. The ultimate reason conservatives wanted to eliminate Roe is to eventually implement a national abortion ban. And I think Democrats, I, like the, the, the selling point that if you, you know, vote in November, we can secure like a national federal strategy for protecting reproductive rights, protecting the right to access to, ab to abortion services. But I also think Democrats very often and incorrectly, in my opinion, leave aside the importance of local elections and local politics. And I think um, one of my like, favorite podcasters, um, he does the Revolutions podcast. He said that like direct action is the way you secure change and like don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I think the best thing Democrats can do at the moment, and I think it's what progressives do really well and often Democrats resist this, is organize directly in, the, in their communities seek more populist campaigns. And until the Democratic Party embraces that kind of strategy, which local organizing is something that Republicans do very well, and it is the mechanism through which they've been able to secure a lot of these victories, um, leaving aside, you know, what they've done to the courts and what they've done to state electoral systems. I think the biggest pitfall of Democrats right now is their unwillingness to embrace grassroots populist progressive organizing we have seen that republican lawmakers are very afraid of progressives very afraid of the popular support that progressives experience and it's and it's mind-boggling to me how resistant the democrats have been to that so i don't know i you would hope that they would embrace what has been proven time and time again to be effective local and statewide campaign practices, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. And, and it's, it's a little bit cynical of me, but that's where I am right now. 
Yeah, definitely. And and I think um and I, and I see we have a couple callers there. Uh, we're just going to chat for a little bit longer and then we'll uh we'll we'll start taking calls, guys. So just just uh hang tight and we'll get to you. Um <clears throat> just kind of last thing on on the Democratic Party here is that uh what Nikki's talking about as far as as state and local elections, I think is a really important point. Um the the Democrats basically had for for a short period of time, uh, you know, between like, I think I'd say 2006 to 2008, uh, they had what was called a 50 state strategy. This was Howard Dean's thing um, where they tried to make themselves competitive in every single state and, and as many uh, districts and counties as possible. And the result of that was that uh, that Ob- when Obama was elected, uh, he ended up taking I think it was like Iowa. I believe he took India. I mean, like there, there were like a number of states that he took that he would not have, I think, taken without this strategy. Uh, and then the minute that he uh, became president, he then shuttered. Uh, he he like replaced Dean with somebody who wasn't interested in that. Um, he and and basically kind of like left the state and local parties to rot. And what we are seeing now is kind of the like the in large part the result of that. Um, but I wanted to like move just off of Democrats here for a couple minutes and and just talk, uh, you know, kind of more specifically about the court's ruling and what it says. Um, for if if you're not familiar, in uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a concurrence, so this isn't the majority opinion. This is like Clarence. This is Thomas's uh, concurring opinion in which he kind of tries to like push things a little bit further. Uh, and what he basically says is that uh, not only should the court, you know, uh, obviously uh, strike this down as it, as it did, but it should also start to think about striking down other rights that are not included uh, in the Constitution, including same-sex marriage um, and the right to contraception. And that is, I think, a real big warning sign coming from the court. Uh, that while while I think that a lot of the time Thomas will be the more kind of extreme voice on the court making the case uh, as far as 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 some of these uh, some of these points go, uh, he he is somewhat of a bellwether of like what the others are somewhat thinking, and uh, that like for him Alito, Coney Barrett, um, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And and Roberts also voted to strike down uh, the Mississippi law, although like n- not so much on Roe, but it was a six-three decision. Uh, the six conservatives and the three uh, liberals versus the three liberals. Um, that I think indicates also where things are going. So I, I I'd be interested to to hear what you think about that, Nikki. And you were talking about like the kind of the ramifications of striking down Roe go far beyond abortion. So uh, I, I think that. It, it's interesting to think about, like, I, I guess right now it's interesting to think about it abstractly because if you start to think about it in material, uh, as as far as, like, material reality, it starts to get really horrifying. But what exactly they're going to do next, what the state and federal uh, Republican Party is going to do next as far as as who is going to be, whose rights are going to be next on the chopping block, what rights are going to be struck down either at the state and federal level. Um did, did you find that like did you find that as disturbing as I did? Do you think that maybe I'm overreacting? I don't know. No, I, I don't think you're overreacting, not at all. I think a Supreme Court judge 
coming out and basically saying that like all cases that you know established personal rights based on like the due process clause and the right to privacy should be reviewed that is a horrifying prospect that is like a supreme court judge which is one of the most like powerful positions you can hold in government saying that like there is no like that there is no guarantee of personal rights because we as a court can decide to do away with them and i'm not super keen on like the prospect of i i haven't like i'm not fully decided let's let's say that on the prospect of like holding impeachment hearings or like hearings to determine if you know coney baird or Kavanaugh lied under oath about like their respect for president what or precedent what i am interested in is revisiting mechanisms through which i'm actually going to rephrase that a bit i think the idea that a supreme court judge is like coming out very publicly and saying that respect for precedent because that that is what thomas is saying that respect for precedent is no longer something that the supreme court necessarily has to abide by uh, in like the capacity of a person's personal rights and encouraging his fellow justices to also take up that stance we're already seeing sort of the effects of that not necessarily directly from the supreme court but state legislatures i think a very key area where you we can observe this sort of rolling back of existing established norms of personal freedom is the like legislative attacks on trans people that are being implemented in certain states i think i believe it's texas that implemented a law that basically said that it's like a bounty hunter type of law where you can whistleblow on parents healthcare providers administrative officials that are providing resources gender affirming resources to trans youth and things like that where we're already seeing these sorts of attacks on lgbtq people implemented in states moving through state governments and if it gets to the point where these attacks reach the supreme court we already have a justice that has made himself amenable to rolling back those personal rights and to stripping away the consideration of like the right to privacy and the personal freedom that that affords people and that's something that we just cannot abide by and that's why like we like democrats should be heavily considering supreme court reform um i think adam sirworm wrote a really good piece about how the transformation of the supreme court in the last decade or so has resulted in the highest court in the land not being a body dedicated to the analysis and implementation implementation of the law based on the law and existing codified precedent it is a body that exists to find a legal way to implement the social worldview and the cultural worldview of the conservative movement these weren't people that were you know handpicked for their like robust academic and like legislative um chops they were essentially nominated by the federalist society because of their amenability to ruling in favor of conservative worldviews 
And that's something that just, it undermines the legitimacy of the court. It undermines the public trust in the court. It makes the court an enforcer of like the conservative worldview, not through representative government, but through a system where conservatives can just send kind of pet legislation, pet issues through the courts of the state where those issue where those issues are likely to pass legislators with where they'll face the right challenges to make it to the Supreme Court and then enforce policy through that through that mechanism, if that makes sense. No, that totally does make sense. I think that's a really uh, that, that that's a really clear way to break it down. I mean, uh, they are trying to legislate through the bench. The, I mean, the very thing that they were like uh, that they've been whining about uh, for decades is exactly what they have been planning on doing. Um, just a lot of projection there, really. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it, it, I think it is important to see it, uh, in the context that, that it should be seen in as, as, as you're saying, I mean, uh, what they are doing is they are trying, uh, to push their agenda because they know that their agenda is fundamentally unpopular. This is the same thing that I think we see, uh, with, with the attacks on voting rights, um, and, and, and other other ways of kind of this minoritarian rule pushing this stuff forward is that they they have been gaming the system for a long time and and, and now we're seeing it you know like uh, yesterday they just ruled that that the uh, uh, that that you can that public school teachers can and, and coaches and stuff can lead students in prayer now uh, which is you know like a huge violation of the separation of church and state. But it doesn't matter because it's about like this this kind of mission, this this worldview that you're talking about, this social conservative worldview that they're trying to push forward. Um, and I, I also think that it's 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 worth noting too that that uh, Justice Thomas was the dissenter um, in the decision to not uh, take on this New York Times versus Sullivan case. And so the very very brief way to break this down is if this had gone through, then it would have been a lot easier to kind of sue people for defamation uh, and and to kind of attack courts or to attack uh, the press uh, in that way, in kind of a similar way that we see in the UK, where, you know, in the UK, there uh, the, the ability of the press to write basically whatever they want is extremely curtailed uh, because if somebody is rich and powerful enough, they can just sue uh, to to get that stuff uh, dismissed and taken uh, and, and just, you know, either erased from the website or, the, or they can sue for millions and millions of dollars. Uh, it just makes it very, it, 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 it makes the, the, uh, the incentives to not publish something that is going to upset some rich and powerful person. Uh, it, it, like it, it incentivized not doing that. Uh, and so, and, and, and Justice Thomas wanted to, you know, to push that one through as well. Uh, and so, yeah, so it didn't happen this time, but it feels like stuff like that is going to continue to happen. And then there's this EPA case. Are you, have you been following the EPA, the West Virginia one? I've been very loosely following. And also to that point, there's absolutely things that Clarice Thomas does not want published, particularly concerning his wife. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I have been following the EPA case. And I think beyond just you know, the issue of like climate change and the ability of like the federal government to regulate 
climate policy. I think the central issue in that case is that it would completely undermine the federal government's ability. Like, well, there are possible rulings that could come from this case that would undermine the federal government's ability to delegate powers, to like delegate tasks. And it could, at its most extreme interpretation in this case, result in just a complete restructuring of how like government organizations function. And again, I don't think this was a case that would have really even been taken up five or six years ago. I think the restructuring of the court is gonna have obviously decades long ramifications for the way government functions in like for the GOP's capacity to reshape institutions in order to better serve them, in order to better serve their like worldview. And I think, you know, I'm not surprised that all this has been happening. It's been happening for decades. But again, I think that placing faith solely in our elected officials to save us from this is a little bit misguided. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying that like elections don't matter. Of course they do. I'm saying that after like <laughs> a couple days of just really solid self-reflection and absorbing everything I can about this issue, to me, I think if people are feeling hopeless, if people are feeling like they need to do something, direct action in your community and state is probably the best thing you can do. Um, Democrats are saying vote in November. No, you should be voting now. There are currently primaries ha happening. There are currently like candidates that need help canvassing, that need help fundraising. Those are all things that could be done immediately. And of course, it's not surprising that Democrats aren't pushing this message about like current elections more intensely. But I think the reality of it is that the court now works largely in service of the Republican worldview. Systems were intentionally broken to make that possible. And voters and citizens, if they wanna change that, cannot keep playing by those rules because those rules don't exist to serve you. They don't exist at this point to uphold a rule by the majority. They are, were intentionally broken to entrench rule by the, major, by the minority. And the Supreme Court has now become the enforcer of that system. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's, that's a good way to, to lay out the stakes there. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, well, let's, let's take, let's, let's take a couple of callers. Um, uh, first, we're going to take Omar uh, with uh, Giannis uh, Varoufakis icon or avatar icon there. Thanks, Omar. Uh, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. Um, country's kind of falling apart, but <laughs> trying to stay uh, positive. Um, I wanted to, I don't know if you've covered this uh, previously, if you've heard of it, but this was brought to my attention by uh, by Jane Elliott. She's a, an American educator uh, on anti-racism. And I don't know if she's the one who kind of uncovered this, but I've found other uh, people writing about this connection between the Roe versus Wade um, decision 
And this book uh, written by Ben Wattenberg, um, who was a former advisor to President uh, Johnson and also connected to the Democratic Party. Um, I, I was just going to read like a couple of sentences from this article, um, but it's it's very informative. Um, it says that uh, he published this book called The Birth Dearth. And the book purports the major problem confronting the U.S. today is that there aren't enough white babies being born. If we don't do something about this and do it now, white people will be the numerical minority. It will no longer be a white man's land. When critics called him a white supremacist, he instead claimed that he was a cultural chauvinist and that Western European culture just happened to be the best one in existence. Mr. Wattenberg saw that the birth dearth was a solvable problem and offered three potential solutions. The first was to pay American women to have babies. He said this plan was untenable because this would mean that he'd have to pay women of all colors to have babies. His second option was to increase immigration quotas. This too was flawed because most of the people coming to America in the 80s were people of color. His third option was the one he thought made the most sense. The third thing we could do is remember that 60% of the fetuses that are aborted, aborted every year are white. We could keep that 60% of life alive that would solve our birth dearth. Um, so I don't know if you had heard anything about that recently, but it kind of makes sense in, in the tapestry of uh, Republican ideology. I miss I missed that last little little but little bit that you said. Uh, what, oh. what did you say was Republican ideology? Oh yeah, that that uh, makes sense. It's cohesive uh, with a Republican ideology. It's about control of women's bodies um, and also of uh, this whole demographic threat, which I've heard in other countries as well, uh, being used to kind of keep to have like demographic engineering to keep the country a certain ethnicity yeah yeah i think i think that's um i mean that is one of the one of the underlying uh issues uh i think for um for people who are uh like i i think that you know one thing one thing that needs to be uh remembered and and i know i emphasize this um uh, every time and, and, and thanks Omar. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I emphasize this like every time I talk about, it, but I think it is really important to always remember that, um, the evangelical movement in the U S the white evangelical right-wing movement is a direct, like they directly came out of opposition to integration, not opposition to abortion rights, not opposition, uh, to contraception. And it was only in the seventies after, you know, like a decade plus of failing to, uh, to overturn the civil rights act and, 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 um, and kind of seeing like the, the, the country and the culture, uh, going beyond them that they then like flipped over, uh, to abortion as kind of like their main, uh, way to get out the vote. Uh, so the, the there's always been a, a heavy amount of, uh, racialized um rhetoric around around abortion around the white evangelical movement uh that that really has you know powered uh the gop uh to to his position of uh minoritarian power now um and so it's not surprising uh you know to to hear this and um if, if you could omar if you could actually drop that article link into 
into the chat. That would be awesome. Uh, Nikki, what's your take on, on, on hearing those couple lines from that article? No, well, first of all, I completely agree. There are absolutely factions of the right that view abortion as a racialized issue. I, I'm, I like completely, completely agree with what Owen said, and I think he said it perfectly, but I'm going to add on here, and I tweeted about it the other day, that the attack on abortion and reproductive rights is also happening along a renewed wave of laws and instances of criminalization of maternal behavior uh, that be like, you know, at the most extreme example, investigating and potentially prosecuting women who miscarried on the suspicion that they like had a legal abortion, criminalization of women who, you know, use drugs during pregnancy due to addiction or other circumstances, the criminalization of women who, you know, might have potentially harm their fetus through other reckless behavior um, or just behavior that the state thinks may have been caused to damage to the fetus even. You know, there's a lot of things. Uh, a really good book on that is Killing the Black Body. If anyone has ever read it, I can't recommend it enough. It's a great history of like state-sponsored reproductive violence in the United States. Um, but I think what's important to remember here is that this criminalization will be targeted towards low-income black women women of color native indigenous women and what we are seeing is the creation of a new system of like a, we're seeing the birth of a new system that not only seeks to strip people of their reproductive freedoms the right to choose when and how many children they have but also, there is a little bit of a void in this country, well, a huge void in this country, over the protection of maternal rights, over the protection of gestating people about what legal rights they have, what can and can they not be held to account to. And I think a really important conversation that needs to happen alongside this conversation of the protection of abortion rights is the codification of the protection of maternal rights and maternal freedoms. And this includes everything from, you know, the ability to use contraception to the guarantee of, you know, maternity leave. It's a huge spectrum of things that aren't protected in law. And again, we go back to this idea that like, I think for a lot of people, the conversation around reproductive rights just centers around abortion, but it's so much bigger than that. And I think another thing that Democrats could do, who knows if they will do it, is work on a full court press to codify a lot of these rights into law. Because with any attack on personal freedoms, attack on maternal rights, those rights are going to be disproportional. Those, that lack of rights is going to be disproportionately used against women of color and underprivileged women. And that's something, and like, thank you for bringing this up, that's something that just cannot be left to the wayside. It has to be centered in the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So uh, let's take uh, Julio next and, and then uh, Nathan and, and Lauren after that. Uh, Julio, go ahead. Hello. Um, yeah. It just feels like, it just feels like a lot of this conversation seems to revolve around the notion that like, 
something might be able to be done for the Democrats. But like we mentioned, you mentioned earlier that um, Obama dissolved his grassroots support. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we've been watching life expectancy falling, people being immiserated by the debt, medical and student. Uh, you see the failure to codify abortion, even though Obama said it was going to be one of his priorities. There's no work on immigration. Hispanic people see the country as treating immigrants and Hispanics generally as third class citizens. Uh, nothing for blacks either. They're basically being treated as second class citizens. Nothing for healthcare, which would could include abortion rights and provide uh, prevent excessive deaths in this country due to people not having preemptive care. There, there's a constant defunding of education, a constant destroying and defunding of the postal service. Infant mortality rates are extremely high, and students are stopping. Uh, they're applying, have stopped applying to colleges. Uh, male students, in particular, we're seeing these groups are reducing their applications. So none of this seems surprising because it's been happening for decades if you paid attention to American history or if you look at the past at all. And so it seems to me that what the, the, what's not being discussed here is the notion of uh, the fact that no matter what gets passed on the state level, uh, the Supreme Court seems to have the, uh, the Supreme Courts at those levels, even at the federal level, have the ability to be anti-democratic. And the Democrats and the Republicans seem to be working hand in hand. I mean, you could see that with the fact that, well, how did the Democrats respond to this? Not by doing anything or helping anyone, but for begging for money and donations. So so I just think that it's it's toxically positive or maybe foolhardy to think that the country works in service of the people at all. It appears to be work in service of capital and capital appears to have won the fight. And so it appears that the country is just going to be collapsing in on itself. I wouldn't tell people not to, uh, you know, do what they can, especially locally and whatever. But the notion that you're going to vote yourself into uh, into a future that is actually uh, one that is desirable, especially for the the most vulnerable people that we bring up all the time, I think is silly because those people I'm part of those communities and uh, we look at the United States as a joke. I mean, the rest of just like the rest of the world, the country I my family comes from has abortion, has had abortion for forever. It's available on demand. There's a doctor on every corner and that country's in the middle of a war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, so. Thanks, Julio. I think that, I mean, I think that's all those are all really good points. Um, I I guess that the the case uh, for voting so much as as it exists uh, is is harm reduction at this point? I mean, obviously, uh, with, with, without without a a, a massive shift, um, y you're not going to find anything that that's going to really make much of a difference. Um, but I, I I think that I think that that's really all that it is. What do you think, Nikki? I mean, that's that's really all that I I'm not I'm not even particularly making an affirmative case for it. I'm just saying that you know. Uh, that's the only case that really exists uh, is to say that, you know, um, maybe there's some the possibility of harm reduction. Um, but, you know, I mean, but ultimately, like, what does that even do? Because I, I think Julio is completely right with 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 all of that. Uh, just that list of horrors that he listed <laughs> out. Right. Like, at, at, at what point do you just kind of give up? And I, I, I certainly sympathize with that.
Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And like, particularly on the abortion issue at this point, like voting is harm reduction because there are already women who do not have access to the care that they need and they are being actively harmed by this, this decision. But I think it's not necessary. It's not like they're, they're, you, you can give up at any point and that's like entirely a personal decision. But I do think that there's nothing that's going to provide relief for that like horror list that Julio provided overnight. But I think the best thing people can do, again, if they are completely disillusioned with our electoral system, which is completely understandable, is engage in direct action. If there are services and resources that are lacking in your community and the people around you, I think so much of our conversation is often centered around national politics that we're kind of trained to forget that the areas where we can most directly affect change is in the communities around us. If there are resources that are scarce in your community, if there are areas where you see a need, put yourself on the front lines, volunteer with service providers, volunteer with local schools who need help, donate to get like organizations involved in direct action. I think the best thing people can do is make, build up the resources that are lacking to the, in the people directly around them build up and so solve the needs of the people that they can identify like face to face and make those resources so essential in your community and so valued in your community that the thought and the prospect of losing access to those re resources and those um well those resources motivates people then to protect them legislatively. I think so much of our politics is centered around this like top level national mindset that we forget, like we've been talking about this entire conversation, that those political issues are actually built from the bottom up. And we see it in polling across a myriad of issues, which like, uh, like you know, polling has its place in the world and it's not the end all be all. But the reality is that when you provide resources and you improve the material conditions of communities, the loss of those resources and attacks on those resources become a political motivator. I think it's easier to motivate people. I don't know. I think that like, I'm just gonna wrap it up because I'm rambling a little bit right now. But I think if you are completely disillusioned by voting and the prospect of like what national politics can do to you, get involved directly in your community. And there are lots of ways to do that. And I think giving up and kind of throwing in the towel only speeds up the collapse. And, you know, we, we got to consider that that's bad for everyone all around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, um, and, and again, um, not to say that there's no uh, sympathy uh, for Julio's point. Um, that snoring in the background is my dog, by the way, in case anybody is picking that up on, on their headphones. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to jump over Nathan here just to get to Lauren, and then we'll go back to you, Nathan, right after that. Um, but I do, I, I know that Nikki only has a couple more minutes, and, and I had been talking to, to Lauren earlier, so I was hoping that we could just get her in here. Uh, Lauren, thanks for calling in. How's it going today? Um, it's, it's going. It's summertime. I'm a happy teacher. Uh <laughs> So I, I do have to say I am one of those people who are completely disillusioned, disillusioned by electoral politics. I went from turning 18 just a few days after the 2004 election 
and being devastated that I could not vote against W in very blue New York to like now, you know, it's, it's our first primary day in New York and sure I'll go vote in the primary for the governor's race because Kathy Hochul sucks, but I, you know, my, my expectations are incredibly tempered. Um, I, I forgot where I was going from this. I wasn't expecting you to call on me so quickly. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I could share the story of when I was 17 and I got an abortion and it, it was about as easy as it could have been for someone in my position. Um, you know, and here I am today in my mid thirties with, you know, a master's degree under my belt and a career in education ahead of me. And, and I definitely would not be sitting here where I am today if I'd had to give birth when I was still a child myself. Um, but, you know, that might be another story for another day. I think most relevant right now is for me to plug my dear friend's documentary. Um, I have a friend who is making a documentary all about uh, maternal mortality rates in black and brown communities in the United States. And it's called the Canary Film Project. And I will drop her Twitter link in the chat. Um, I think everyone should go check out that account and give her money so she can finish this film. Um, Definitely. And I, I don't know where I was going to go beyond that. Was there, was there anything in particular that uh, you wanted to discuss, Owen? Because I'm kind of shot today. No, no, no. That's fine. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for uh, thanks for calling. I think that um, you know it is. Uh, uh, Lauren brings up a really interesting and and important point. I think that is, you know, th it's not only the uh, the people who it's 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 like like the people who are going to be affected by this ruling. Um, like it, it, it really, it really like kind of spirals out from the center, right? Like, you know, in, in Lauren's case, um, had she not had the opportunity to become a teacher, she wouldn't have been able to have an impact on many children's lives. And that impact then kind of, you know, has, has its, you know, the ramifications and on and on and on. Um, and, and I just, I, I just think it's, it's always important to kind of look at that in the micro way. And then kind of expand out and think about like all of the different material ramifications that these laws can have and the way that they can affect people uh, way down the line. Um, and, and I, yeah, like I just, I, I just think about like what this is going to do to people's lives uh, and, and just the way that that'll, you know, uh, keep going and, and, and the ramifications of it. Um, Nikki, what, 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 what do you think? Oh, that, absolutely. Thank you for plugging that. And thank you so much for uh, sharing your story. I think it is vital that women who've experienced abortion and have the freedom to make that choice continue to like speak out about their experience and what they went through. So thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. Cool. Um, so uh, let's take uh, Nathan. Nathan, go ahead. Uh, thanks for calling in. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. First of all, greetings from Brazil uh, for you and for Nikki. I have a very quick question. Uh, as I said uh, in, on my call in your episode with Cameron about guns, I'm from Brazil. 
and I'm not going to so I'm not going to pretend that I know everything or anything for that matter about the United States legal system because you know I'm not even a lawyer. But uh, looking from afar and from a very common sense perspective, it seems to me that the main core of the decisions coming from the United States Supreme Court right now. Uh, your Supreme Court uh, boils down to the guarantee of the state rights. So if that's so, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's so, if that's true, my question is what is the actual purpose of the United States Supreme Court? What, justify, what, what justifies its uh, function and its own existence given the fact that uh, as far as you know, every decision, every legal matter that goes to the Supreme Court will quite possibly be turned down to the states uh, so they can deal with it in its own terms. So for what uh, the United States Supreme Court exists? That's my, my question. Got it. So um, I'm, 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 I'm going to give a stab at kind of explaining this. Um, the, the Supreme Court is kicking down to the states uh, this particular issue uh, because they're holding, like in their ruling, that the federal constitution does not guarantee a federal right to abortion. And so because there is, in, in their view, right, in their view, because in, in their view there is no federal right to abortion, therefore the federal government uh, cannot have a role, and therefore it is up to the states. Uh, the again this is a this is an extremist radical right wing court uh that ha is is interpreting the constitution in ways that are uh well first of all they're not very consistent but um you know with respect to uh abortion rights in this specific case uh they are basically saying because abortion is not mentioned because they don't find that it is a part of the right to privacy uh, that therefore there is no federal right to it. And so, so, but that is like the, the point of the court is to figure out like what, uh, like ostensibly, uh, the purpose of the court is to figure out like what is, uh, part of the federal government, what can the federal government do? And like, what are the limits and, and the abilities of the federal government? Um, and I, I realize that that's like a woefully insufficient explanation, uh, Nikki, if you want to take a stab at it too, but but I think that like if, you know for the purposes of time, like that's kind of how I would how I would say it. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention here that historically, the Supreme Court has granted and uh, protected a lot of rights that are not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. Um, in this particular instance, and in the instance of you know same sex marriage contraception, the protection of like consensual same-sex relationships, that all took place under the due process clause, which basically established that people in citizens of the United States have a right to privacy, which guarantees protection from undue interference from the federal government. And I think you're completely right that a decision like this undermines previous decisions outside of abortion made by the Supreme Court under that framework. And as we discussed earlier with Justice Clarence Thomas saying that, well, basically, if we're going to argue that, you know, something in the that isn't mentioned in the Constitution doesn't necessarily like fall under the protection of a due process clause or I'm not sure, like I didn't read the entire opinion. I read like a couple pages of it that had to do specifically with that, but it does undermine previous decisions and it does 
call into question the credibility of the court, the credibility of it as an institution, if, you know, long held decisions, previously, previously established reasoning can just be thrown out for political gain or like, because through a political project. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people are in the, uh, like in the United States and abroad. I'm also from Mexico. Our courts work extremely differently. It, while, you know, the United States has been eroding um, reproductive rights, Mexico has been building them up in a very different way. And it's been fascinating to watch with like one foot in each country. But what I think a lot of people in the United States and abroad are questioning the legitimacy of a court that now operates in this function. And I think they're entirely justified in doing so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Nikki, do you have, do you have time for, for one more caller here before we, uh, before we say bye? Yeah, if we can keep it real short. I got to hop off to watch the surprise January 6th committee hearing. Yeah. Exciting times. <laughs> exciting okay, cool. times. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, anonymous, uh, Thanks for uh, calling in. Um, if, I, yeah, if you could just keep it uh, pretty short, and then we'll we'll we'll, we'll take it from there. So, uh, apologies for plugging a different podcast, but it does give a history of uh, quote unquote great replacement theory from 19th century France and how it's affecting even us today. Because you know it was called great replacement then uh, in Charlottesville, they were saying you know you will not replace us now. So there's a direct line. Uh, secondly, um, with regards to the, the, you know, what is the purpose of the court, you know, the, your Brazilian caller, I mean, essentially at this point, it's to restore, you know, the, the whole state's rights argument is what's used for justifying the civil war and the uh, social construct of a the antebellum South. So, I mean, I think ultimately that is the unstated purpose of, uh, of the current construction of the Supreme Court. And uh, lastly, when we talk about voting is harm reduction, we're essentially um, putting at the same level as, uh, you know, a methadone uh, program or a needle sharing. Uh, so not exactly the highest ideals of the founding fathers. That's all I have. Uh, yeah. So thank you. So uh, yeah, uh, no, no argument um, with, with any of that. Uh, I think, I think the uh, voting as methadone is, is, is a great analogy uh, that I may uh, snag at, at some point. Um, and I'd also agree with, with that interpretation of, of what the court's doing. I mean, like, we don't really know like what the end game is. There might not even be like a specific end game. It might just be, you know, like, this is just uh, we're, like, things are just going to evolve and, and happen uh, in, at their own, at their own uh, pace. And of course the, the, the racial backgrounds as well to that. Like that's, that, that is maybe like an even like, um, so, uh, Nikki, I'll give you, I'll give you a chance to have like a couple final words here. Um, and then kind of just let people know where they can find you now and find your work. Congrats again, uh, on the new position. Um, and yeah. Thank you so much. Um, well, yeah, I just wanted to reiterate that, like, I think if we're going to consider like voting, particularly in this next election as like ultimately like a harm reduction strategy, because people are already being harmed. We also have to consider it as part of a larger long-term project to undo the erosion that the GOP strategy and GOP politicians have done to our institutions and also the Democratic Party part, in, in part. I think if we're going to consider it as harm, like voting, it's harm reduction, but it still has a place. We can't just, you know, 
abandon people to the whims of the Republican Party and just like, you know, wash our hands of it. That's not like, I don't think that's constructive, but I think people, I think it's important to start offering people options beyond just vote for us, give us money. I think that's the ultimate thing there. And side note, if you are interested in free replacement theory, Owen and I have a previous episode about that. Um, I have been interested in the right wing's obsession with the theory for a very long time. So I'm glad you brought it up and I'm always happy for podcast Rex. But I want to thank you, Owen, for having me on again. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, if you need me, I am on Twitter at Nikki MCR and I will be watching the January 6th committee hearing for the next hour and maybe writing about it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Nikki. Uh, thanks everybody for calling in. Uh, great discussion today. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Um, if, if you're listening live or on replay on the app, uh, please be sure to subscribe, follow, etc. If you're listening uh, on replay through syndication on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, uh, please uh, be sure to sign up, follow, like, whatever, do all the different things uh, on there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we will see you guys. Oh yeah. Also like get the app if you haven't already, so you can call in and become part of the conversation. That's, that's also an important thing, uh, to note. Uh, yeah, so we'll see you, uh, on Thursday, I believe. Um, not a hundred percent sure what we're going to be talking about yet. Might be talking about Brazil, might be talking more about Roe, might be talking about this hearing that's coming up. So, uh, stay tuned and, um, yeah, we'll talk then. Bye.